With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Welcome to Scuderia F1, the podcast that's always up to speed with the latest Formula One news. Follow us on Twitter at Scuderia F1 Pod and subscribe to the show on iTunes and Stitcher. Now, here are your hosts, Mark Daly and Kevin Laramay. Hey everybody, what is up? Welcome to the podcast that is always up to speed with Formula One here on the Overtime Media Network. Mark Daly here, welcoming you on board to the show this week. And once again, I'm here all by my lonesome here in the studio. Kevin is once again off planning and preparing for his wedding. And for anyone that has been through a wedding or helped plan one, uh, either for yourself or someone close, you know how hectic and crazy it can get, especially in the final few weeks and days before the big event. But certainly we'll keep going here. And you know, honestly, I didn't think I was going to be able to do, do the show this week. It's now Wednesday night. It's the the 5th of June here, 75th anniversary of D-Day for all you history buffs out there. But I was really, really sick over the weekend and it was really weird. It came on super quick, went to sleep on Saturday night, 100% okay, woke up, well, kind of woke up on Sunday morning and I just felt horrible. I thought I was just going to struggle through the entire week. But of course, you know, when, when Monday comes around and it's back to work and you lose half your weekend uh, being sick, of course, Monday is Monday and you feel fine. But <laughs> honestly, I think I would rather be well on Monday rather struggling through because Sunday was not fun. But here I am, energy levels back at 100%, which is a good thing because it's about 10 p.m. here in Vancouver on the West coast of Canada and it's taken forever to get going tonight. I mean, shame on me. I've left my laptop off for about a week and I hope this is going to go okay because as we speak, Windows 10 is running an update in the background here and having gone through it at work the other day, <laughs> it could pose some problems. So if this episode tends to be a little bit disjointed because I might have to patch it to, together at some point later on, I apologize in advance. Anyways, before we get going, I just want to give a shout out here and there's this really made my day because uh, we got a little bit of correspondence here not not a lot but this time we got a really awesome review and this came through on uh, Apple Podcasts in the uh, the US iTunes store and this is from uh, M Forte 1985 and uh, they write I love Scuderia F1 it's definitely my favorite F1 podcast available today Mark has a great knack for delivering information in a way that makes you seem like you're sitting there with uh, having a beer with one of your friends very calm and knowledgeable. Love it. Thanks, Kevin and Mark. Keep up the great work. Well, thanks very much for the uh, the, the review and really, really appreciate it. And it, it's it's kind of cool. I mean, this is what the show is supposed to be about. You know, Kevin and I, we do a lot of media work on, uh, on the soccer side of things in Major League Soccer and in the national teams here in Canada. And we have all the access to the players and the coaches and the teams and everything. But being in Canada <laughs> makes it very difficult to get in the F1 world. And 
we don't necessarily want it to be that way. We just want to come together and sit down and talk about F1 and just have a little bit of fun with it. And sometimes it's kind of unscripted and kind of unplanned and that's kind of a part of the fun. So glad that uh, you're enjoying the show and hopefully the rest of you are as well. So let's get into the news today. And uh, of course we have our home race. Well, my home race, if uh, you're Canadian like uh, myself, but it is the Canadian Grand Prix in Montreal this weekend. And we start off with news that Lewis Hamilton says, quote, I can definitely do five more years in F1. (laughs) So I think if you're everyone who is not Lewis Hamilton, you have to be extremely worried about what that's going to mean. I mean, Lewis is only 33. And in this day and age, the, the way that athletes are more in shape, the way that they approach things and the the way that careers are lengthened. I mean, obviously he's not playing in the NFL and and taking a pounding each and every Sunday. I mean, those careers are obviously shorter, especially if you're a running back or something similar. But Lewis, if he can go another five years, I mean, look at Kimi Raikkonen. Kimi is now pushing 40. He's going to race for the remainder of this year and one more year. So he'll be about 41 by the time he retires. Lewis saying he's got another five years pushes him up to about 38, 39, completely doable. I mean, Kimmy's still racing at a good level, struggling a little bit uh, with Alfa Romeo. I mean, they have not really delivered in the same sense that that uh, Sauber Alfa Romeo racing or whatever they called themselves last year did. But certainly, I mean, Hamilton in the prime of his career, racing for the best team in Formula One at the moment, maybe one of the best teams ever, certainly in the in the past 20 years ago, since the, the, the dominance of Ferrari and Michael Schumacher back in the early 2000s and late 1990s. But that is obviously, I think a big warning sign to all of his rivals. And look, I'm going to be right up front with you. I sometimes get a little bit bored with Lewis winning all the time, Lewis setting all the records. But on the other side, I have crazy respect for the guy. He is just so good because, you know, when he needs to put in the times that he needs to, when he needs to get something done, as long as the car is there with him, you know that 99 times out of 100, Lewis is going to take care of business and and do what he needs to do to either just build that gap enough to preserve his lead or whatever it is, or or save his position when he goes in for a a pit stop, do the undercut, do the overcut, preserve the the win, or hang on like he did in Monaco a couple of weeks ago. I mean, they blew his tire strategy by putting him out there on those medium tires that he went on to drive for, what, 67 laps? Absolutely amazing stuff. But I mean, he fought hard. And I mean, that's not easy, staying 67 laps in front of a guy like Max Verstappen. And it could have all come to tears at the chicane at the end there, the way that Max locked up a little bit and and slid into Lewis, but fair play to both of them. I mean, uh, Lewis defended, he stayed uh, in front of him, obviously had more grip on his rear tires. That really helps when he needed to put the power down and just build up a little bit of gap uh, between himself and Max. But certainly, I mean, that was an impressive drive. And it's similar in a way to the the, the problem that Danny Ricardo had uh, last year. I mean, different in the sense, obviously, because Lewis was dealing with tires that were really <laughs> falling apart in really, really tough shape. Whereas Danny Ricardo was uh, dealing with an engine issue that really had him, well, basically leading an entire train of cars behind him, none of which uh, could actually pass him when, uh, when when the opportunity arose. I mean, they're both impressive in their own rights. And I think that's what, uh, what it comes down to. But Lewis now, you have to think, if he's saying that he's got uh, five more years left in, in him, at least in Formula One, you got to think that, uh, that he's 
still motivated. And, you know, that has been for me a question about Lewis Hamilton. And I mean, I don't mean in the sense, oh, is Lewis motivated to come to, to, to Formula One? Is, is Lewis all there mentally? Is he, is he focused? No, not that at all. But I mean, he already has so many records. He already has five world championships. And I often wonder to the, to the point that, not so much that is he going to be motivated to get up out of bed and go to the track on a Sunday morning or a Saturday for qualifying, whatever it might be, or winter testing. But just my question has been a little bit in the, the back of my mind the past couple of years is just how long is Lewis going to want to go on and stay in Formula One and find it challenging or just get to the point and, and when he sort of realizes, you know, I've, I've done enough here. I've proven everything I've needed to do in Formula One. I've won so many races. I hold all these records and I'm good with it. Now it's time to go and do something else. I mean, <laughs> you know, it would be a little bit sad, obviously, to see him walk away. I mean, he only has a contract until the end of next year, I believe. I don't think it was, uh, yeah, I think it ex- expires at the end of 2020, but you got to think that if there's any way that Lewis and Mercedes can get that sorted out and a new contract to, to keep him there for another several years beyond that, why not? I mean, would you want to give up a good thing? And uh, if, if you're Lewis Hamilton driving with Mercedes that has the best car in Formula One and has done for the past several years and they've won so many world championships, both for drivers and in the constructors, I mean, amazing stuff. I mean, we seem to talk about that uh, regularly, but it is obviously a, a phenomenal achievement. Or is Lewis going to get to the point when his uh, Mercedes contract is up that he decides, okay, I'm good with Mercedes. I've done all this. Maybe I want to go off somewhere else. Maybe I want to go back to McLaren where it all began. I know that seems like a bit of a stretch and a bit of a leap at the moment, considering where uh, McLaren has been over the past several years, but you know, they're slowly making their way back up and talk a little bit about that in a couple of minutes here. But that's another thing I wonder if he decides to stay in formula one, does he want to stay with Mercedes or could he maybe even go to Ferrari or McLaren? I mean, there's all these different things, but Lewis even says himself that if he was to leave formula one, he would be uh, or he says right now he's uh, wary of squandering F1 chances by retiring early. I mean, let's just, let's just break it down. Look at Lewis. Like I say, I mean, he's uh, in his early thirties right now. He's started 235 Grand Prix in his career, five world championships, including four since 2014, 77 wins, 140 podiums, 3,155 career points, 85 pole positions, and 42 fastest laps. So, I mean, he right now is tied with Juan Manuel Fangio, one of the greatest Formula One drivers of all time. They both have five world championships. The big boy, the guy that's got all of the records is Michael Schumacher, still on top after all these years. So look at the uh, Michael's uh, records now. Seven world championships, 91 wins, 155 podiums, 1,566 points. Okay, point structure was obviously different when uh, when Schumacher was racing. 68 pole positions and 77 fastest laps. Excuse me. Well, obviously, Lewis has already caught a number of these uh, records that Schumacher, uh, Schumacher holds and has overtaken them. 77 fastest laps for Michael compared to 42 for Lewis. 
Well, that might be a bit of a difficult one to to catch. Lewis is only 15 podiums off Michael's record. I mean, he's got 140. Uh, Sorry, Michael has 155. That's really doable. I mean, that could even happen this year in the, uh, the, the, the remaining number of races. So there's still 15 races left. I mean, I should check the schedule before I say that or else I'm going to have to put my foot in my mouth. But anyways, the point is, I mean, that is going to be the next one that he's going to be able to to, to take down. I mean, he already has overtaken Michael in uh, the, the pole positions. And he did that in Canada two years ago. And <clears throat> that is, uh, it's amazing. I mean, Lewis, 85 pole positions compared to 68. When, when I remember when Schumacher set that record, I, I thought that would stand forever. So Lewis, you would have to think that if he has a shot to equal or surpass all of those, and I mean, six world championships is obviously a legitimate and and very possible goal uh, this year for, for Lewis Hamilton. I mean, I know we're only half a dozen races into the season so far, but I mean, he is in control at the, mo- uh, the, 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 the moment and all things continuing the way that they are. I mean, it, it is a very realistic uh, possibility. I mean, right now, it, <laughs> there's only two guys that are, are in it right now, right? And it, it's going to be the two Mercedes drivers, Lewis Hamilton, Valtteri Bottas. Bottas had a bit of a, a, bit of a rough time in Monaco. I mean, he still managed to finish fourth, kind of came off a little bit worse uh, for wear compared to, uh, to uh, Max Verstappen in that little incident in the pits there. But still, I mean, he only lost one place and it really hasn't hurt him too much in the overall picture of the, 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 the world championship at the mo- moment. Lewis on top with 137 points, Valtteri in second, 120, 17 points. Points. That is not really a big, big gap. I mean, when you consider the way that uh, Formula One structured, I mean, 25 points for a win. Obviously, simplest scenario is Lewis doesn't finish a race for whatever reason, which obviously seems a, a little bit unlikely. And Bottas wins one, which is obviously something that uh, that could happen. I mean, he's already got a couple of wins this season already, which is a which has been wonderful for him, continue, or considering how much he struggled last year in 2018. It was a, a bit of a difficult season for him. So, I mean, the point is, uh, by the by, the time it's all said and done, it's kind of a, a bit of a, a regression or a return, depending on your point of view, of Formula One to, say, the Hamilton-Rosberg era, in the sense that it is just basically going to be one of the two Mercedes drivers that is going to win the world championship. Unless, for some reason, Ferrari can finally get it together, which seems about as unlikely as Lewis Hamilton not finishing a race for a, for, for whatever reason, and uh, Ferrari saying all sorts of pessimistic and very unencouraging things about uh, their car at the moment. Talk about that on the other side of the break here in a minute. But that's the way it is. It's going to be Lewis Hamilton, Valtteri Bottas, and the way that these guys are going, obviously one of them is probably going to be world champion, unless something drastic happens. And obviously they're going to rack up a bunch of wins. And obviously, obviously it's going to be obvious that in doing so, Lewis is going to crawl ever closer to Michael Schumacher's records and uh, maybe rewrite history in the process. I mean, it would be amazing to watch. I thought that when Schumacher retired, especially after he left uh, Ferrari, when uh, he went into retirement, and I thought that was it, that we'll never see anybody like uh, Michael Schumacher again and set all those records. I mean, of course, in 2007, 2008, Lewis Hamilton 
just a youngster, just coming into Formula One. Who knew at that point that Lewis was going to do all the amazing things in Formula One at that time? We all knew he was good. It didn't take him very long to win that first world championship. But do we really expect that all these great achievements were going to come afterwards? And I would dare say not. Anyways, a time here for a quick break. And on the other side, we're going to talk about Ferrari. We're going to talk about the Canadian Grand Prix. We're going to talk about a whole bunch of other things, including that Renault says that they've got plenty of data to prove that they are actually improving. All right, then. Anyhow, time for a quick break here on the Overtime Media Network. Don't go away. We will be right back. Passion, drive, and patience. The formula for winning championships is also what keeps your ride or die alive. eBay Motors has everything you need to maintain your vehicle and level it up to peak performance. Superchargers, roof racks, exhaust kits, LED headlights, and more. Whether you're into speed, power, or style, eBay Motors has you covered. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you'll always find exactly what you're looking for. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, your part is guaranteed to fit your ride every time or your money back. Because with eBay Motors, you're burning rubber, not cash. With all the parts you need at the prices you want, it's easy to make your car the MVP and bring home huge wins. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. All right. Well, welcome back to the show. And like I said, just before the break, and as you guys probably all know at the moment, this weekend is the Canadian Grand Prix. And for reasons that should be apparent would be one of my favorite races. And for once, when it's great when the when, when Formula One comes back to North America, that for people that, that live here, either in Canada, the USA, Mexico, South America, we can actually watch Formula One at a, at a normal time. It's great at the start of the season when they're in Melbourne and in some of the, the other early season races, because it may come on fairly late at night, but for people like me who tend to stay up very late on weekends, that's ideal viewing time. And I've always been one of those people that I can stay up really late and kind of pull an all-nighter. But on the flip side, I'm not getting up at 5 a.m. on a Sunday, even for Formula One. I do it on a Monday to Friday because I get paid to do it, but on my own time, I'm a, a little bit, uh, let's say, more reluctant to get out of bed before the sun is up on my own free time. Anyways, like I say, it's great to be able to watch the race live, even though the Montreal is thousands of miles from where I am here on the West Coast. It still is exciting, still feels like a home race. And it's the same thing that, uh, that, that same feeling I get when we have the U.S. Grand Prix in Austin in the fall, Mexican Grand Prix and even some of the South American races as well because it still falls into those nice sort of time frames. Japan's another one that's uh, very good and very convenient for for watching. So it's it's nice, but it's kind of strange the way that Montreal always gets fitted into the the, the Formula One schedule and the so-called European season because it's not. I guess there's a real argument that uh, that Montreal's got more of a European than maybe North American flavor to it, but. It's just kind of interesting the way how they sort of jump around in the early parts of the season. And then after here, it's back over to the European continent and we get into a lot of the 
a real flurry of races before the the summer break at the end of next month. But anyways, just a, a quick rundown on Circuit Gilles Villeneuve. It's a 70-lap race, a 4.361-kilometer length. Uh, it makes for a total race distance of 305.27 kilometers. And Rubens Barrichello holds the lap record of 113.622, and that was set back in 2004, so quite some time ago. But if you look at the, the, the race last year, the fastest lap was set by Max Verstappen in the Red Bull Renault, and he set a 113.864, so only about two hundredths of a second off uh, Ruben's all-time fastest uh, lap. And who knows, maybe with that single point on offer, maybe we might see that time tumble this year. Well, last year we saw a, uh, a starting grid of uh, Sebastian Vettel, Valtteri Bottas, followed up by a second row of Max Verstappen and Lewis Hamilton, a third row of Kimi Räikkönen and Danny Ricciardo. Is that really a surprise? No, it's it's been the way <laughs> that way the, the the past several seasons in Formula One, and that's the way it usually is. It's usually a combinations of Ferraris, Mercedes, and Red Bulls. Although this year, more uh, Mercedes at the front. But anyways, Sebastian Vettel started on pole, and he ended up winning that race. Actually, the top three on the starting grid was also your podium, uh, and the exception in the in the top four there was Danny Ricardo switch places with uh, Lewis Hamilton and uh, Danny came home in fourth place, Lewis in fifth and Kimi Raikkonen in sixth position. And it's interesting too, if you look back one year ago in Formula One and check this out, the Constructors' Championship in uh, the beginning of June 2018, Mercedes was at the top with 206 points, Ferrari not too far behind with 189, uh, Red Bull 134, so <laughs> pretty much par for the course. But you look at the driver standings this time last year, Sebastian Vettel, 121 points, Lewis Hamilton, 120, Valtteri Bottas, 86, Danny Rick, 84, and then Kimi Raikkonen, 68. And uh, it, it really was, I thought at this point last year, I thought it was pretty exciting just how tight and how close it was between Vettel, between Hamilton. And I think this was uh, the, the time in the season last year that you really felt that that uh, Vettel had a legitimate shot that he might be able to uh, have, have a shot at winning the world championship. Obviously, it turned out uh, very, very different in the, in the long run. But at this point, uh, there certainly was uh, a lot to play for in the uh, in the drivers' championship. I just uh, I thought it was just kind of an interesting uh, kind of stat there with the, the, the way that uh, it, it popped up and uh, how how close it was. And oh, when you look at the end of it, it certainly was. Very very, very different. But uh, again, just when you look at the, um, sorry, last year's um, race results, but then if you look at the all-time statistics, so Michael Schumacher has won the Canadian Grand Prix seven times, and Lewis Hamilton has won it six times, and it's been basically Lewis's race since 2010. He's won it uh, five times since since 2010. Um, excuse me. <clears throat> Sorry, I got it still got a bit of a dry throat here, guys. Apologies for that. Anyway, so like I say, Lewis Hamilton has won it five times uh, since 2010. Vettel's won it a couple times. Danny Ricardo won it once. And even Jensen Button won it in 2011. And it really is, for me, I think, 
it's it's going to be Lewis's uh, race to lose. I mean, he really is in fine form. I think he's going to be really motivated. I think he's going to really come out flying after that uh, that huge win in Monaco a couple of weeks ago. But I think on the flip side, I think it's going to be very interesting to see how Val- Valtteri Bottas uh, rebounds after what was obviously a bit of a frustrating um uh, race for him in Monaco because he got a little bit kind of caught out and uh, ended up dropping points in that race. But certainly, I mean, he hasn't, I think for my money, um, really had his uh, confidence uh, really deflated at all this year. I mean, I thought he really came out in Australia at uh, at the opener and really made a statement. I mean, he, was, he wasn't miles ahead, but I mean, he was far enough uh, for most of that race, that it, it it was obvious that unless he had some sort of incident with the car or some sort of accident or something like that, that that was going to be his race. And certainly, I think he answered a lot of questions for for a lot of people, myself included, uh, considering uh, the, the 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 difficult year that he had last year. I was just wondering how's he going to come out? How's he going to respond to a frustrating season? Uh, you know, take that time off over the winter, get your head together, focus, prepare, train, and get ready. And certainly, he's he's done very very well and it's way too early I think to say that that uh, either one of these guys is going to be a favorite or or a lock to win the 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 world championship I mean as I said in the previous section uh, that I really believe that it's going to be one of these two guys and there could be a lot that happens between this weekend and the Abu Dhabi Grand Prix at the end of November I mean there's a lot of races, a lot of miles left to drive, and anything can happen, obviously. And this would be a great weekend for Valtteri Bottas to really uh, pull him back, uh, back up and really make that uh, statement again that, hey, I'm still here. Uh, I'm not going anywhere. There's still plenty to fight for. And uh, you, you, Lewis, you know, you you may end up ultimately being the world champion, but I'm going to make it as difficult as pos- uh, possible for you to do so. And who knows, maybe Valtteri Bottas can pull it off and win his first world championship by the by the time it's all said and done. Anyways, just before I dive into the, some of the actual news of uh, the, the week, uh, just a bit more of a refresher on the world championship at the moment. It's, um, as we talked about uh, just now, uh, Lewis Hamilton currently first with 137 points, Valtteri Bottas second with 120, Sebastian Vettel in third with 82, Max Verstappen fourth in the world championship with 78, Charles Leclerc in the second Ferrari, fifth in world championship with 57. Talk about a guy that wants to make a big rebound after after Monaco, Charles will want to do that this weekend because, I mean, everything that went wrong or could go wrong in Monaco did go wrong. And that must have been uh, extremely upsetting for the guy having that many problems in your home uh, Grand Prix. And it was just a nightmare. Anyways, uh, just to round out the top 10, we got uh, Pierre Gasly with 32, Carlos Sainz, Kevin Magnussen, Sergio Perez, and Kimi Raikkonen, the Iceman, 10th in the World Championship with 13 points. All right, well, the next item of news is that uh, Ferrari is now questioning whether or not the SF90 car concept is uh, correct after a a poor start to the season. Well, I think if they're starting to question that now, maybe they're about three or four races too late, but 
Well, I mean, let's be fair. I mean, they did have uh, some good showings in uh, Bahrain and Baku, and things didn't work out 100% in their favor. I mean, uh, Sebastian Vettel got a podium in Baku, and uh, it was interesting. I thought that race, that uh, when he was uh, giving the post-race uh, interview, that to me, his body language and just the the, the way that uh, he presented himself was, he seemed like a man that was, I wouldn't say comfortable, but uh, certainly he seemed that he was... Um, I wouldn't say accepting of the position that he's in, but certainly seemed like somebody who was resigned to the fact that, okay, well, we have an okay car, but it's not as good as Mercedes and we're, we're not good enough to catch them. But it was impressive uh, what, uh, what what Charles did in, in Bahrain. Certainly he should have won that race if he didn't have the engine problem, which uh, slowed him down. Even Vettel was, uh, was very pacey in that race as well. And, and Charles, again, was very racy and was very, quick in in Baku as well uh, obviously he uh, didn't uh, qualify as high as he could because he had that uh, that crash in Q2 that uh, pushed him back on the starting grid but when he was on the medium tires he was absolutely flying and uh, who knows uh, how he could have done had he qualified higher up uh, on, on the starting grid like he would uh, he normally would but basically what uh, what Ferrari is saying right now is that the car that they have the SF90 is very aero efficient and so it's 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 a bit of a trade-off between the downforce and the drag. So obviously, if you have more downforce, you're going to have more uh, grip, and that's going to help you in, in the corners. And then reducing the drag means that you're going to be quicker on the straights. So this year's Ferrari is actually very fast on the straights and the high-speed corners, but it's slower in the in the slow-speed corners. Or the problem is in the slow-speed corners is because it has this lack of downforce or it doesn't have as much downforce as say some of the other cars is that it's not putting enough uh, load onto the tires and that's the problem that they're having and I think Haas is another team that's having an issue with uh, with this as well uh, and this year is that the tires that uh, Pirelli have uh, developed for 2019 uh, have a different uh, thickness uh, to them so it's the, the problem that they're basically happening having with the uh, Ferrari is really getting enough load through the downforce on the car into the tires and that's basically generated by the friction on the track and getting them into that real sweet spot uh, temperature wise and I guess when you're this far into the season it really kind of makes you wonder how much you can really do because obviously these teams are developing and working on the cars throughout the year I mean they all are I mean they're going to be a couple of seconds a lap quicker by the end of the year than they were at the beginning of the year the <laughs> the big thing of course is that some teams usually in the middle of the pack are able to maybe leapfrog some of the teams around them, but it usually is a very difficult process because everybody else is progressing forward. Some may progress a little bit more than others, but it's really rare to see one team really leapfrog another. And certainly if Ferrari is going to close that gap to Mercedes, they've got to do a lot more work and they're going to be 
in a really difficult place to do so because you know that Mercedes is doing exactly the same thing. And who knows, maybe at some point, uh, Ferraris is going to say that, you know, enough is enough. We've put enough development, we've put enough time into this car for this year. 2020 is coming, and maybe we're just going to start a little bit uh, sooner than usual and start uh, reassigning, refocusing our, our, our assets and uh, all our resources into getting away from the problems that we have with the car with this year spend extra time in developing the car for next year and hopefully get it right and have a car that's a, a better contender. But again, I mean, it's interesting that uh, they, they are having these issues with uh, the, the tires, getting them into that optimum uh, performance uh, range or that temperature range. And uh, it, it it still kind of blows my mind a little bit because when we were talking just a, a little while ago about how much more competitive and how threatening Ferrari looked a year ago to see where they are now is it's it's a bit disappointing honestly uh, that they they've they've taken this step backwards and they they have been doing so for for quite some while i think that uh, it would be fair to say that where they struggled in the second half of last season Mercedes excelled and that's basically the way that uh, it it stayed ever since and until they do so, are able to find that. It really isn't going to be, uh, I think, a real change. Because, I mean, even Ferrari themselves have, uh, are saying that uh, they're, they're not expecting any significant improvement soon. So it really makes me wonder when I hear an admission by that, by uh, Mattia Bonato, the team principal for at Ferrari, that it's just going to be a question of time that if they 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 figure that they're not going to be able to get much out of this uh, this car this year that that it's just going to be not it's just not going to be worth it at some point because even though mathematically or theoretically uh, Vettel still has a shot to win the championship I mean there's going to be some ridiculous amount of bad luck and misfortune that would have to happen not just to Lewis Hamilton but also to Valtteri Bottas and uh, for that to turn around in the way that would be necessary would almost be uh, a collapse of epic and unseen proportions in, in Formula One Certainly, I mean, uh, you wouldn't expect that uh, of, of a team of the caliber of Mercedes. Uh, it, ju- it just doesn't seem <laughs> doesn't seem plausible to me. So, like I say, I, th- that's my big question is, where is that line in the sand when Ferrari finally say this year, you know what, this year is a write-off, let's refocus, let, let's spend extra time in research, extra time in design, and get this car ready for 2020. Anyways, time for a quick break here on the Overtime Media Network. Don't go away, we will be right back. All right, welcome back to the show. And I hinted at it a little bit earlier that we were going to be talking about McLaren and we're going to do so right now for the next little while. And we're going to start with news that McLaren CEO Zach Brown says that he believes that the team is now in a state of what he calls total clarity now that Andreas Seidel has joined the team. And of course, uh, Seidel was uh, the the head of the Porsche LMP1 project and he finally joined uh, McLaren at the Spanish Grand Prix a couple of uh, weeks ago. And uh, he's the second big recruit to to join the uh, team uh, this year following uh, James Key who used to be the the technical director at uh, Toro Rosso. So there's been quite a a big restructuring and a lot of big names and important people and um, filling in uh, important jobs at uh, McLaren um, that um, follows uh, with uh, Andrea Stella being promoted to performance director and uh, Jill DeFerrin, who's a guy that uh, many race fans here in North America will be familiar with. 
uh, he's uh, the sporting uh, director. And this has all happened since uh, Eric Boulier uh, left uh, McLaren uh, last summer. And uh, when uh, motorsport.com, uh, this is where the, the, the original source uh, from this uh, information comes from, uh, asked uh, Brown about uh, what uh, Seidel's start, what the team has done um, for the, the, the leadership uh, structure of McLaren. Uh, Zach said he uh, believes that they have total clarity on the team and uh, leadership with uh, Andreas. He says he's known him for some time. He's a racer. He's technical. He's very focused and he's very dedicated. And he says uh, he's, he's very clear in his direction and he knows where the team has been. And, and, uh, and, and, and Zach Brown from here, I think it's very interesting. I think he's very upfront and very candid about this. And uh, that's one of the things I like about uh, his, uh, his demeanor, the way that he speaks and uh, is quite upfront about things. And he, just regarding the whole leadership structure of McLaren and just uh, having uh, Andreas Seidel there as the team principal, he says, uh, we're now in a situation where there used to be what he said, too many chefs in the kitchen to now they have just one. And it really is interesting because I think that McLaren may have just been too big. I mean, it's a a team that has obviously huge resources. And again, it's one of those teams when you look at it, it's just mind blowing to see how bad they've been over the past uh, several years and how far that they've uh, fallen. And you would think with all these opportunities and all these uh, big names and and everything that they they should be able to achieve as a team that they were still struggling just to even get organized on some uh, very very basic levels so i mean if if brown is um is encouraged that getting Seidel on board and having him as the guy that's uh, basically directing the whole thing, that has to be a positive step because I think even without him, I think that uh, so, so far this year at any rate, I mean, there was a bit of a waiting period before he could join McLaren. And like I say, I mean, he's only been there for a couple of races so far, but the the signs are definitely there so far this, uh, the, this year. I mean, they're not challenging for podiums. They're obviously not uh, challenging for, for race wins, but at the very very least you can see that there is finally some some forward progress and it really is i think encouraging from from that point of view that even though they may not be setting formula 1 on fire and the, the the fact that they're just blowing it up every week and and and, and just really bringing home bag fills of, or bags full of points and stuff like that. I mean, they're doing it little bit by little bit. Lando Norris and Carlos Sainz are, are doing it slowly, uh, but surely. I mean, so far, I mean, we are, like I say, only half a dozen races into the season so far. And again, at the top of the constructors, you have Mercedes, 257 points, Ferrari, 139, obviously a big, huge gap, and then Red Bull with 110 points. I mean, there's no surprise that that is the order in the Constructors' Championship at this point season, at least to my mind. I mean, I think based on what we've seen over the past couple of years, it should be uh, what's to be expected, to be quite frankly. But when you get into the, the best of the rest, that's to me where it starts to get interesting, because at the moment, you have in fourth position in the Constructors, you have McLaren. Then you have uh, Racing Point, Haas, uh, Toro Rosso, Renault, Alfa Romeo, and then very down at the bottom is uh, Williams Mercedes. And might I add, I mean, uh, McLaren has 30 points, and then you have Racing Point, Haas, uh, Toro Rosso, Renault, and uh, Alfa Romeo. The, the, the last 
five teams in there. They're only separated by four points of the Constructors' Championship. Racing Point has 17, Alfa Romeo has 13, and everybody in between has a comb, you know, <laughs> they just basically fill up from there. So, I mean, it, it's very, very small, and uh, it, it'll be fun to watch and see how the, the, the midfield in Formula One uh, sorts itself out over the next several months. But certainly, I mean, McLaren is... is they've gotten almost double the points of the next closest team at 30. I mean, at 30 points, they're still miles behind uh, Red Bull or a third in the Constructors' Championship. But to me, I just think it's interesting how those those bottom five teams, I'm not even counting Williams at the moment. I mean, they don't have any points and they're not going to get any points considering how much slower they are than everyone else. But like I say, I, th- I think it's interesting that McLaren is kind of in that nether region i mean they're obviously not good enough to catch up to to red bull at the moment and uh, they are just a little bit better than than everybody else at the moment so we'll have to see how, what happens this weekend in canada and and beyond but certainly very very interesting uh, to to see how it's uh, shaking out at uh, at the moment and now that they have a dedicated uh, team principal like andreas seidel and he's going to be focusing and running this team now exclusively uh, from, from here on out and you have a, a good a technical guy and James Key really makes me uh, wonder how soon is it before we see more of a leap up the, the, the table, up the standings and see that gap uh, between McLaren and Red Bull uh, closing. So like I say, I mean, they're, they're small gains, but it's finally forward uh, momentum because a couple of years ago when they had the, the all those problems with Honda and the way that it was just... It, it really become a joke. <laughs> I mean, there is no other way to say it. I mean, now a couple of years later, it's it's completely a different story. I mean, uh, Honda and and Red Bull and uh, Toro Rosso are doing some good things together. I mean, obviously, uh, there's still a way to go before uh, Red Bull can maybe really become legitimate and consistent race favorites each and every weekend. But I still say that I think that they are at least at least on the same level as they were last year with the Renault engines, if not maybe a little bit further ahead. I mean, the, the points may not completely play it out or explain, prove it that way, but my gut feeling is, and just, just watching them, they seem to be just a little bit further ahead. The, the Honda engine just has a little bit more compared to what they had in the Renault engine last year. So that's just my take on on things. But, you know, sticking with uh, McLaren now, um, Brown, he uh, keeps uh, going on to that. He says that uh, he believes that there are hints of Mercedes-like quality in in, in McLaren. And sure, why not? I mean, uh, McLaren is a very, very storied uh, team in, uh, in in Formula One. I mean, they've won multiple world championships, uh, both in the constructors and the uh, and the, 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 the drivers' world championships. It's been obviously quite a, a long time. It's been quite a long time since they, they won a, a Formula One race. But certainly, I mean, they have the pedigree. They, 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 they've done it before. They've, uh, uh, and hopefully we'll be able to do it uh, again. I mean, if you look at what they've done since they, they first entered uh, Formula One way back in 1966 at the Monaco La- uh, Grand Prix, which is kind of coincidental, which was the last race that they, they um, uh, drove in just a couple of weeks ago. Anyway, since then, since 1966, they have entered 852 Grand Prix. They've won 
eight constructor set championships, but this is the big one for me for for a team that was so dominant. I mean, especially as a kid growing up in the eighties, in the nineties. I mean, they were one of the teams. I mean, they won the constructors championship in eighty four, eighty five, eighty eight, eighty nine, ninety, ninety one. But the big one is they haven't won it since nineteen eighty eight. And then on the flip side, they've won twelve. Uh, constructors, uh, sorry, drivers championships. Again, in those years in the 80s and 90s, there's so many drivers championships as well. Nikki Lauda won it in 84, 85, 86. Not, not all Nikki, this is Senna and Prost as well. And then uh, you get them to late 90s, you have Mika Hakkinen winning a pair of uh, world championships, and then Lewis Hamilton winning his first in in 2008. And that's the the, the last time that they won a uh, a driver's championship. So, I mean, it's been, obviously it hasn't been all doom and gloom since uh, Lewis won his, uh, his world championship in 2008, but certainly they just, even in that time beyond that, they just haven't been quite in the position to do it. I mean, of course we saw the rise of Red Bull and then they were still, I mean, obviously McLaren were still winning races in there, but Red Bull had their, their time and then Mercedes have had their time since then. And they really do have a long, long way to go before they can really become a legitimate contender again for, for races and podiums and things like that. But certainly, you know, what they're doing, I think, is is impressive. And it's interesting to see Zach drawing those parallels, make those kind of comparisons between uh, Mercedes and uh, McLaren, because McLaren did at one time what Mercedes has been doing for the past uh, several years. So they 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 have that history and they've 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 done it before. Obviously, it it hasn't been for for quite some time. But basically, what uh, what he's doing is he's getting key people in key positions. And I mean, obviously, this is going to be a bit of a uh, an understatement. And uh, obviously, there's a lot more to it. But I mean, it, it is really important when when you when you are running a business, be it a Formula One team or whatever it might be, that that you need good people to to, to run it. I mean, they obviously have good engineers. They have good people to build the cars. They got some good drivers. They have good mechanics. All that sort of thing. But if the the effort isn't properly focused, if it's not uh, properly being managed, then it's just gonna, not going to be uh, what it should be. And who knows? I mean, I don't have any inside knowledge <laughs> into McLaren. I don't have any wonderful insights, but there was something that just wasn't going right the past several years. The Honda engines were, were a big one and everybody thought, well, Honda's coming back in. They were the, the McLaren-Honda partnership in the 80s and 90s is one of these wonderful partnerships that we've seen over the years, like the Williams-Renault or Red Bull-Renault even. And uh, it just didn't turn out the, the this second time. It was the complete flip side <laughs> in the past several years with McLaren and Honda to what they were in the 80s and 90s when they were so dominant uh, together. But certainly I think that what uh, Mercedes do is that I think if you do the little things right, that the big things tend to kind of take care of themselves. Again, that's a bit of an uh, oversimplification. But, uh, you know, Zach goes on to say that, you know, teamwork is important and just... Uh, 
just little details. He goes on to say that he, he felt that it was very important when you look back at the winter testing in Barcelona back in February, that seven of the eight days, they were the first team out on the track. You know, they're, they're putting the work in there. They're really uh, doing all the little things. And then uh, he also believes that the pit stops are really strong and that the, some of the technical advancements and the teamwork and the focus. And they're, they're, there's a very good spirit around the team in the factory, in the design office and places like that. And uh, certainly, I mean, again, it's, it's, it's easy to speculate and comment from, from the outside, but just based on my own personal experience, and I'm sure a lot of you guys too, a lot of us have had, uh, had jobs. You go to a company, think it's going to be a great place to work. You go there, you have a great interview, you get a really good vibe out of them. And then you go there and you find out the atmosphere sucks. (laughs) There's lots of politics, a lot of back talking and, you know, like just, it's just not a great place to work. And then, you know, people, you kind of suffer being because of that and, and people don't perform at their best. So to hear that, that there's all these sorts of things that are going on, very, very, uh, positive, uh, positive. And anyways, I'm just going to sort of stick with this uh, very briefly before I take the final break of the show. Uh, just, uh, speaking, uh, about Andreas Seidel and he, he's right into it. I mean, uh, the, 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 this is one of the first articles that I've seen when the first stories I've seen about him. And he says that he wants 2021 rules clarity so they can start uh, shaping uh, McLaren uh, for the future. So here's a guy, obviously very dialed in, very focused, knows what he needs to do. And he's not only just looking towards what, what they're doing this weekend in Montreal, but he's already looking two years down the road. And that's that's where you got to be. Is If you go back and uh, read Ross Braun's book that uh, came out uh, a couple of years ago, Total Competition or whatever it's called, he always felt that uh, that uh, shaping a team was about a, like a three, four year project where the first year or so you're kind of uh, learning the what the situation uh, and, and what needs to be done. The second year uh, or the second phase, you're, you're implementing changes to take the team in the direction that you need it to, to go. And the third uh, phase is basically you're moving it forward and you're, you're where you need to be and uh, you're, you're winning races or whatever the, the, the case may be. Obviously, <laughs> for Ross, it would be winning races. And uh, he, of course, had a very, very uh, impressive career in Formula One. Anyways, time for one final break here on the Overtime Media Network. And we're going to start to close it down on the, the, the other side. But we still have a lot to talk about. Anyways, time for, like I say, a very quick break. Don't go away. We'll be back again in just one moment. Oh, right. Welcome back to the show for the final segment of the week. And is it just me or does anybody else out there find that Christian Horner can sometimes be a bit of a Debbie Downer? I mean, look at this, this headline here. Horner, final 2021 rules will be nowhere near June drafts. And that's, you know, the one thing I hate about Formula One is the politics and all the things that kind of go on away from the track. I mean, I guess there there is a certain amount of appeal and interest uh, to it, but it seems that it seems like a very Christian Horner kind of comment. Uh, I mean, for all the, the 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 good things that he's done in the sport, I just uh, sometimes I find some of these uh, things that he say just a, a little bit kind of gloomy. And uh, he says that uh, that the 2021 car regulations will no no be nowhere near what is expected to be signed off on this uh, month. So 
Uh, I, I don't know what to, to say. I mean, uh, I, I remember, what was it, over a year ago now when they came out with, uh, or Formula One came out with their concept of what they wanted to, to do in 21 and, and everybody was all excited. Oh, the cars are going to look amazing. The racing's going to be amazing. And then it's kind of really been very quiet since then. Of course, there's been a lot of talking and then for a while, of course, it seemed that uh, it was very negative or there was seemed to be a bit of pushback from the different uh, stakeholders. And the one thing I, I must say, though, that uh, seemed a little bit more um promising than than usual is that you didn't have a lot of teams threatening to pull out and leave Formula One. I mean, there was the usual kind of talk from uh, from Ferrari saying that if the engine rules weren't up to their liking, that if it wasn't what was like almost in their DNA kind of thing, that maybe they consider leaving Formula One. I think uh, Total Wolf maybe have even said something passing in uh, at one point if that if the, the, the regs weren't up to what uh, was kind of the ethos of Mercedes, maybe they would uh, consider their future as well. But I mean, those those sort of comments have actually been pretty far and, and, and few between. But where I, I get a little bit uh, frustrated is that the discussions have not been really all that public and it, they've been glacial uh, at best. And, and even Ross Braun, the sporting or motorsport uh, director of Formula One, <clears throat> excuse me, was uh, saying something uh, similar that uh, he was disappointed at the lack of uh, progress at uh, at one point. So who knows? I mean, they, they can still get something done, but whatever it is, it'll be interesting to see. And I really kind of hope that that they can get kind of close to what they they really wanted. I mean, of course, it's it's one thing for Formula One to come out and say we want to do this, this, and this in uh, in twenty one. But is is it really going to be practical? Is it is it really something that can be implemented? And you know, that's the sixty four thousand dollar question. What may look great on paper may not be all that easy to to put into uh, in, into uh, practice. And uh, I don't know. We'll we'll wait and see. I'm keeping an open mind about it. And I guess at the end of the day, if the racing's better and it's more competitive and there's more overtaking and all these things that we as Formula One fans seem to want, if that uh, comes to fruition, if that's what the new reality looks like, hey, then that's great. And hopefully that's what it turns out to be. But again, one of those uh, situations where we'll have to wait and see. Anyways, I think it's interesting too that uh, despite some of these uh, less than positive uh, comments about the 2021 regulations coming out. It is interesting on the the other side is that uh, a Porsche built engine is actual, uh, actually a real possibility for, for 2021. And I, I think it would be great. I mean, it would be kind of cool to see Porsche come in as a, as a manufacturer in their own rights. But if they were to be at least a, an engine manufacturer, I think that would be uh, something kind of cool as well. Uh, I, I mean, at, at this moment, we only have a couple engine manufacturers in Ferrari, in Mercedes, in Honda. So, I mean, if you can deepen that pool a little bit more, that would be uh, really kind of, uh, I think it'd be cool to see. I mean, it really is. Oh, I should I completely forgot Renault. No, no, no disrespect to them, but where is that sweet spot for the number of uh, engine manufacturers in Formula One? Uh, I mean, Mercedes have several customer teams, as do uh, Ferrari. Uh, Renault, of course, uh, supply uh, themselves as a as a works team, and uh, McLaren have Renault engines as, as well. And then you have, uh, um, you know. 
you, you have uh, Ferrari supplying themselves, Haas, Alfa Romeo and all that. But where is that sweet spot? I mean, at, at the end of the day, there are only 10 teams. And is there really all that much uh, d- demand? I mean, when um, th- we were about this time last year, when uh, Red Bull and uh, and Renault, I mean, it, it seemed pretty obvious at the time, and it had, had been pretty obvious for some time that uh, that 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 whole partnership was going to dissolve, and uh, and and Red Bull were going to take Honda engines. I mean, it seemed to me that they were really shopping around when that that whole situation came together, where. Uh, uh, McLaren and, and Honda dissolved their partnership and then got the Renault engines and then uh, they ended up putting Hondas in the back of the Red Bull or sorry the, the, the Toro Rosas I always thought that that was an interesting situation a real try before you buy thing and uh, because I mean Christian Horner has been saying some pretty unflattening or unflattering things about Honda and this is nothing really new I mean that had been going back uh, at least to 2014 2015 at least in my memory without even really digging into it just uh that uh, that they were just uh, behind power wise compared to say Ferrari and Mercedes and and that's really the way that it's been I mean they they have been lacking behind uh, Ferrari and Mercedes uh, for for a couple of years and and last year that gap was closed a little bit and um, but again. It, when you look at the overall picture uh, and you see that Mercedes is, like I say, supplying a couple of teams as is Ferrari, as are Honda, as are Renault, is that already too much of a diluted pool? Is there enough room for another engine manufacturer? But it, uh, it, it really would be fascinating for, uh, you know, another manufacturer to come in and supply engines. And you have to wonder if, uh, if if that was possible, what is that sweet spot on the other side uh, of the equation for, uh, say, a Porsche, like to, to make the whole effort, to make the whole program uh, worthwhile? I mean, it, it's a big undertaking to uh, design one of these uh, V6 uh, turbo hybrid engines. And uh, even um, uh, the uh, technical director of Racing Point, his name uh, escapes me at the moment, he was uh, making comments uh, earlier this year that just uh, that these engines that they have are almost too complicated and whether or not they should uh, should uh, maybe simplify them again. But it, it is a big, huge undertaking. And that was the problem, by and large, that Honda had when they came back to, to Formula One was not only were they coming back into a technology that uh, that they hadn't been developing. I mean, they were several years behind everyone else. I mean, the other manufacturers had the benefit of not only uh, starting development many years earlier, but they'd already been racing with these uh, V6 turbo hybrid engines for a couple of years as well. So uh, is... Are they setting themselves up for a similar kind of thing that 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 Honda was in uh, for? Uh, but it's uh, it would be great to see. So we'll wait and see whether or not uh, Porsche decide to take the plunge in uh, in 2021. Anyways, uh, anyways uh, moving on to, to Renault, who I uh, quite cruelly forgot a couple of minutes ago. Danny Ricardo uh, claims that they have the data to support that uh, that they've made a breakthrough in uh, in Formula One. He says that there's real substance behind the uh, behind their uh, their their optimism, and he believes that uh, they can make a big step forward in a couple of weeks uh, with the update that they're going to introduce at the, the the French Grand Prix and uh and not too short of a time from now anyways it, it Renault you guys I don't know they to me they've been disappointing when when they stepped in to take over Lotus a couple of years ago I was uh, really quite uh, I, w- I was happy at the time because they have done some very very good things in in Formula One 
Renault, that is. And uh, obviously, Fernando won his uh, two world titles when uh, he was a Renault driver. And uh, I mean, they've uh, been an engine manufacturer for years. I mean, they've had success with Williams, with Honda, uh, sorry, with, uh, with, with Red Bull, and uh, as a manufacturer in their own right uh, at different times. But as this incarnation as a team, we all knew that it would take a, a little while before they would uh, be competitive. And the first year that they were back, I mean, it was just a, a rebadged Lotus with uh, with a Renault badge on the front, uh, on the on the front of the nose, and different colors on it and everything. And you just that was just obvious at the point because I mean that deal didn't get done until late in the winter, or whatever it was in 2014, 2015, 2015 season. Anyhow, it's you just knew that it was going to be a short to, well, more of a mid to long-term kind of project. But you know, the, the end of it is, at this point of time, at least from my point of view, is that I would have thought they would have been further ahead. I had fully expected that it would take some time to to break out of that mold and, and, and really um, make their mark and, and turn that from a Lotus into a Renault. And it would certainly be several years of transition before that was uh, completely 100% uh, complete. And at this point of uh, point in time, I really kind of feel that they've almost stagnated a, a little bit. I really felt like that last year was not a, a too big of a difference from from 2017, or the the uh, the increase, increases were marginal. I mean, but having said that, at the end of the year, they did finish fourth in the world championship in uh, in 2018. But certainly by this point, I'd really expected uh, to see them, if not. Um, maybe if not uh, directly uh, fighting for podiums a lot further up and, and a lot closer than they are. I thought uh, that this year uh, going into uh, the, the season, again, it'd be Ferrari, Mercedes, Red Bull at the top. And uh, those would be your big three teams as, as it usually is. But then I would have expected them to kind of be in the same situation where they, they, they left off last season. And I, I really thought after the first couple of races, as things kind of started sorting themselves out, that they should kind of be more in the mix with uh, with McLaren, but they've had some tough races, and I think that the first uh, the, the first quarter of the season is maybe summed up a, a little bit by that uh, double DNF that they had uh, in in Bahrain when uh, R- Ricardo and Hulkenberg literally retired from the race at identically the same moment in time, which was uh, completely bizarre. But you know, having said that, I mean, we we still have a lot of races to go in 2019, and they they could turn it around. They could make up that ground uh, up the table and and break out of the midfield uh, pack, and maybe they they will do absolutely that. But it's uh, it's just kind of uh, interesting that the, the way that Ricardo kind of like frames it that well, we have the data to prove that uh, that we're actually better than we are. So. It's, uh, I, I, I don't know if there's a lot of truth to that, or it's just like you can make the, the, the numbers work to kind of uh, prove your story. But I'd like to see it because it, uh, like I say, they have been uh, disappointing so far, and I'd uh, like to see them uh, do a lot uh, better. And one of the things they're, they're actually considering is a qualifying F1 car for 2020, uh, whatever that uh, that that might be. But maybe that's uh, what they need to do. Maybe they need to uh, focus more in, in, in different areas, um, and, and try and gain advantages uh, where they can. But I mean, if you have a, se- a certain kind of setup for, for qualifying and uh, it's uh, radically different than your, ra- your what, what car you're going to run during the race, 
is that really going to help? I don't know. <laughs> we'll have to wait and see. But it's an interesting kind of uh, theory. But anyways, we are starting to run out of time here a, a little bit. So I do have to, to uh, start wrapping it up. And uh, one of the things that uh, I saw earlier this uh, week is a, it's a bit of a sad one. And the uh, the, the race organizers at, uh, at Barcelona have called for urgent government help to help uh, save the, the F1 uh, race there. And that's uh, kind of been on the rocks for the past uh, couple of years or sorry, past several weeks, couple of months. And I, I kind of have a little bit of an emotional and sentimental attachment to, to the circuit because that is actually one of the uh, venues that I've been lucky enough to go and watch a Formula One race at. I mean, anybody that, uh, that that's listening that's actually been to Barcelona, not even for the for the Formula One race. I mean, the city itself is just a, a world class uh, destination. It's a beautiful city. So many wonderful uh, things to to see. So many things to to do. So many wonderful places to eat and drink. I mean, it it is just a wonderful destination in its own right. I mean, the circuit itself is can be a little bit uh, kind of predictable. I mean, we saw some interesting uh, things at the Spanish Grand Prix. Uh, Last month, uh, obviously, I think one of them was the uh, the incident between the Haas drivers, uh, the crash between uh, uh, Norris and uh, and Stroll in that first turn, uh, and then uh, Sebastian Vettel trying to uh, overtake Valtteri Bottas at the start there. So, I mean, it, it's had its moments, uh, and I, I guess one of the most memorable ones, or a couple memorable ones in the the, the past couple of years, was a. Uh, uh, Hamilton Rosberg crashing out in the the the, the first lap in 2016, and then uh, Max going on to get his first win in Formula One. So, I mean, for for maybe what might not always be one of the the, the sexiest uh, tracks for for action. I mean, there there have been some memorable things that uh, that have happened over the years. So, who knows? It uh, it would be sad to see them go. But if you listen to uh, Formula One chairman K- Chase Carey. There certainly seemed to be no lack of uh, takers to want to host a a Formula One race, but uh, I hope it stays. But again, that's just uh, my two cents, and who knows what uh, reality will be. Anyways, it is time to wrap it up there. I I need to get some H2O here uh, desperately. Throat's starting to get a little bit dry, so this is the perfect time to wrap it up. Anyways, if you want to weigh in on anything I talked about, easiest way is on Twitter at ScuderiaF1Pod, or drop me a line at scuderiaf1pod at gmail.com and that's it that's a wrap guys enjoy the canadian grand prix this weekend uh hopefully we'll have a chance to to chat uh, quickly uh during the weekend if not we'll definitely be back after the weekend and until next time like i say enjoy the canadian grand prix and i'll talk to you guys again very very soon Thanks for listening to the Scuderia F1 podcast. If you want to get the show notes for this episode, then head over to ScuderiaF1Pod.com. Want to get in touch with us? Then email us at ScuderiaF1Pod at gmail.com.